Hi, welcome to Power to the People with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Today on our program, we're taking a look at what in the heck happened in the Senate this summer with healthcare legislation and what KFTC members across the state have been doing in response. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and this is our vision. We are working for a day when Kentuckians and all people enjoy a better quality of life. When the lives of people and communities matter before profits. When our communities have good jobs that support our families without doing damage to the water, air, and land. When companies and the wealthy pay their share of taxes and can't buy elections. When all people have health care, shelter, food, education, and other basic needs. When children are listened to and valued. When discrimination is wiped out of our laws, habits, and hearts. And when the voices of ordinary people are heard and respected in our democracy. Thunderstorm warnings always sound very apocalyptic, I think. Okay, here we are in Berea. Very excited to be here for the second taping of the People's Healthcare Hearing. So I went to Berea one day in July. That's some folks on staff with KFTC in Madison County. Never been to the Bria office before. I think um, it'll it'll be like that in the beginning, just to introduce. And that's Jonah Kabilis. He's one of our new organizing apprentices at KFTC, and he's an absolute angel. And then it'll we'll break it out for like okay, conversation. So the incredible thing I got to watch was people showing up for their health care. It's a Friday afternoon. A big storm is rolling in. And Jonah is in a room in Berea with four KFTC members who have come here to spend an hour just talking to each other on camera about their healthcare stories. After your story, it's like, and if you're just joining us, my name is, and then we're doing this. But let's back up a little bit. Okay. So it's mid-June, and the House of Representatives has passed what appears to be a pretty atrocious health care bill. It famously includes huge cuts to Medicaid, which, of course, is a big deal in Kentucky, where thousands of folks got coverage under Medicaid expansion. It takes away funding from Planned Parenthood and changes subsidies around a lot. Now, the Senate is talking about doing something similar. But the thing about the Senate bill is that no one really knew anything about it at this point in the summer, except, of course, for those few senators who drafted it in closed meetings. So when it became clear that the Senate might vote on this mystery health care bill, we were sort of like, hey, hold on. We have a few things to say about this, too. So at KFTC, we organized our own public hearing. 
this feed. The emergency health care hearing. QFTC, Connections for the Commonwealth, has put together 24 hours of emergency health hearing about this um, bill that's proposed that we actually don't have a lot of details about. Thank you for joining uh, the People's Emergency Health Care Hearing. I'm a small businessman here in Berea, Kentucky. I am a 16-year-old junior at Berea Community High School. I am from Richmond, Kentucky. HearOurHealth.org. very disturbed and really saddened and disappointed that um, you know a handful of older white men thought they could get in a, a room and shut the door and decide on the fates of millions of Americans. That's Chris Woolery. He's a KFTC member here in Central Kentucky. Okay, so back to Berea and Sweet Angel Jonah, who's talking with members there. Uh, this will be exactly 55 minutes, and it's important it's 55 minutes exactly because we're going to be looping it in a chain of 24 of these um, timed for our event. Uh, with that in mind, uh, I'll remind you about some of the tips I told you all. You know, try to be action-oriented. You know, you can say, I... The idea really was to gather folks from all across the Commonwealth in one place. So well, like one place on the internet, and open up space for them to share their reflections, their feelings, concerns about what leaders in the Senate, including our very own beloved Mitch McConnell, were trying to move forward. A bill that would take health care coverage away from thousands of us. five days, we organized 140 people to share their stories for 25 hours straight, around the clock, starting at 5 o'clock on Sunday, June 25th, and ending at 5 o'clock on Monday, June 26th. We called it the People's Emergency Healthcare Hearing, and it got over 33,000 views. The hours were organized into segments like Northern Kentuckians or folks in recovery or young people. There was even an hour for members of the Kentucky Black Lung Association to talk about how the ACA has affected them. It was pretty amazing to see so many Kentuckians speak out about this. In this state that has in many ways been on the national stage for healthcare repeal since this conversation started in January. If you live here, or even if you haven't, you may have seen stories from national media recently that are like, We're going to the hills of Appalachia to talk with Trump supporters who voted against their own self-interest, which is just awful and like not representative of the beautiful and brilliant rich tapestry that is Kentucky. So we thought it was our turn to write the story. The, the way that access to mental health care opened up after the ACA. That doesn't really get a lot of press. So, you know, having the ability to tend to that uh, very vital part of health um, healthcare access and just healthcare uh, services um, was really important for me. You know, HIV is a serious illness, but it's a chronic illness that can be managed with the amazing medications they have these days, but it would be a pre-existing condition. And so if our health insurance system were to roll back, a person like my brother or like the clients that I've worked with may not be eligible for insurance, which may mean that they would have difficulty paying for the medications they need to stay alive. Everyone around and our politicians need to recognize that this is a life and death issue for so many people. I don't know, I think it was like 
about a million Kentuckians are on Medicaid, and so that's that's almost a quarter of our state that's facing um, the elimination of their coverage. You know, sometimes you feel like you're just banging our head against the wall. Do we really want a healthier Kentucky, or, or don't we? You know, which which is it? This is what the what these men are talking about. They have worked all their life in the mines, and they're only asking and fighting for what they they are legally given to them. By the time I was three, we had spent 25% of our $1 million life cap. And my condition's very costly to manage, and I probably wouldn't be alive without it. And the whole time there's this overwhelming cloud of how is this gonna get paid for? Yeah. Are they actually gonna do this? Is this actually what I need for my health, you know? That was Drew Bowling, Dean Quinn, Chris Harris, Pam Mead, Maggie Epperson, and Desmond Davis. Just a few of the 140 people who participated in the People's Emergency Healthcare Hearing. Back in Berea, I catch up with one of them, Estelle Bayer, after the Madison County Hour. So why are you, why are you interested in um, pushing for healthcare that won't affect you personally? because I live in this society. I want a healthy society. Did you have a fun time today? Today, mm -hmm. doing this? Uh, I wouldn't say I had a fun time, but it was interesting. <laughs> and I just look for interesting, okay? I, I'm really one of those people. I, right. I just take it as it comes, so. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad you were able to come out. Okay. Sounds like you, y'all have both been a part right. of uh, She and some... I go to every march we can. <laughs> <laughs> Jean. That's great. Thanks. She's pointing to her friend Jean, who was also a participant and is also retired. They have this really lovely sort of friendship that, from what I can tell, involves a lot of activism. Jean had said during her talk, If you want people to do something for you, you have to get noisy about it. You have to pick it. You have to... Uh, email, you have to walk those marches, you have to, you have to be out there. They, they don't know what you're thinking when you're sitting in your living room crabbing about it. <laughs> right. Well spoken from my uh, marching buddy. Yeah, we, we, we have a pact. We go together. <laughs> and of course now, I guess enough people across the United States did get out of their living rooms or, you know, otherwise speak out in some way because it did fail in the Senate, as we all remember. Actually, let's take a quick look back on what the heck went down this summer with the Senate health care bill. Okay, so this bill was drafted largely in secret, and when it finally came out to the public, it was called the Better Care Reconciliation Act. Even early on, several prominent Republicans spoke out against the bill, including our old pal, Senator Rand Paul from Bowling Green, who said he would, quote, absolutely vote against it. His reason being, of course, that it was not enough of a repeal of the ACA. On June 26th, the Congressional Budget Office released its scoring of the bill, which estimated that 15 million more people would be left uninsured compared to the ACA in 2018. By 2026, that number was estimated to increase by 22 million. So the vote got postponed until after the holiday, and then Mitch McConnell pushes back the Senate recess until mid-August so that they can work on the BCRA, this new 
Better Care Reconciliation Act. And here's where they start talking about amendments. The big one is the Cruz Amendment, which would allow insurers to offer, quote, bare bone plans that don't meet AC requirements, so long as that insurer also offers a gold, a silver, and a bronze plan. So there's a lot to this amendment that we won't get into today, but a lot of experts said the Cruz Amendment would drive up costs for plans that do offer essential health benefits. Okay, so the vote on the BCRA keeps getting postponed because Senator McConnell just doesn't have the votes for it. Several senators have voiced their opposition, starting with Susan Collins of Maine and our own Pride and Joy Rand Paul of Kentucky. But by mid-July, other Republicans have joined them in opposing the bill, including Mike Lee from Utah and Jerry Moran from Kansas. And then on July 18th, in a super weird moment of all of this, frankly, President Trump pulls the ultimate free market card and announces that he wants to just, quote, let Obamacare fail and that he wants to only replace the ACA when the market collapses. Can you imagine? Can we just take a moment and recognize the fact that our president is literally advocating that the health insurance market fall apart just so he can win? So Mitch McConnell is like, fine, we can't pass a repeal and replace bill. Let's just pass a repeal only bill. He announces that they'll hold a vote the week of July 24th. And then the very next day, it comes out that Senator John McCain has been diagnosed with brain cancer and all hell breaks loose. The BCRA has been reduced to a repeal-only bill, and the Senate needs McCain there to pass it. But like I said, he's like literally having brain surgery. But they're moving forward anyway, and even though the Congressional Budget Office is all, it's a trap, and literally every single medical group, patient group, and most insurance groups are like, please don't do this, please. Through some procedural trickery, they're able to knock down the number of votes needed to pass a version of the BCRA. And you may have heard this referred to as a skinny repeal, which would leave some of the ACA in place, but would repeal the individual mandate the employer mandate, and a device tax. So eventually John McCain like dramatically shows up with this huge scar on his face from, you know, brain surgery, makes this big dramatic speech about how we need to have a bipartisan discussion of the bill, votes to move forward, and actually it's Vice President Pence who has to cast the vote to proceed after a 50-50 tie. The next day, July 26th, this really wild thing called Senate Vote-O-Rama happens. I'm not kidding, and in some ways it kind of feels like a healthcare bill free-for-all. Like a ton of bills and amendments were introduced and voted on, including actually a bill for single-payer, introduced by Steve Daines from Montana, but obviously that didn't get anywhere. This is right about the time that the House is talking about enacting, quote, martial law, which is this whole other thing. And finally, it happens. Super early Friday morning on July 28th, they're voting on what's called the, quote, skinny repeal of the ACA. And it looks like it might pass because this version includes a lot of the stuff folks like Ted Cruz really love, like removing the requirements for plans to include stuff like prenatal care. But then, old maverick John McCain is like absent for the votes somehow, 
But then he enters the chambers, walks up to the podium, and just holds a big thumbs down. There's audible gasps, and Mitch McConnell is like, uh, uh, and somewhere Donald Trump is rage tweeting, but clearly doesn't understand the rules of the vote, really. Anyhow, Senator McConnell says it's time to, quote, move on. But we're still here, and we're demanding equitable and affordable health care for all in Kentucky. You can, again, go to hearourhealth.org, where you can share your story, uh, learn more about what you can do to take action, um, and continue watching our 24-hour-long live stream of the uh, People's Healthcare Hearing. Uh, Thanks, everyone, again, for being here. Uh, Signing off. Yeah, thank you for helping me live my childhood dream of being an NPR talk show host. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to leave the meeting. Yeah! Yeah! (laughs) You're a great NPR talk show. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at Medicaid in Kentucky. Uh, Hey, everyone. This is Patty Mentor from the KFTC chapter of Southern Kentucky, reminding you that you can check us out online at kftc.org. There, you can get plugged into our work all across the Commonwealth and find out how you can support KFTC throughout the year by becoming a sustaining giver. Your membership will always stay current and you can become a sustaining giver with a gift of any size. There is no better time than now to sign up and you can find the details at kftc.org. Welcome back to Power to the People with KFTC. Today on our show, Healthcare Summer. 2017. So much. I always tell people forgive our house because we do have pets. So if you see tumbleweeds of fur rolling around, we're really sorry. Yeah. (laughs) I was once a Medicaid recipient myself, not too long ago. And I feel annoyed at the lack of depth and complexity most folks give to the story about Medicaid expansion. So I sat down with Megan Gammon, a mom in Bowling Green, to hear her story. Megan has benefited from Medicaid in her own life. Trying to start a life after college got difficult when the recession hit, so she ended up on Medicaid through both of her pregnancies. Now, she and her husband have coverage through his employer, but it's her mother who has struggled the most. I I am the daughter of an alcoholic, so I spent most of my life from the age of 11 really looking for the kind of help my mother needed as far as like her addiction and how to get the funding for that and the money for that because they're very expensive programs. Megan has spent so much of her life just scrounging for resources to help her mom. Rehab programs and halfway houses, most of which were always grossly underfunded. My whole life has been this like ongoing process of dealing with like um, unaddressed mental illness that was just like not ever really diagnosed, not really addressed. There were things that weren't really just doctors and programs that just weren't available for her. When the Affordable Care Act passed, Megan says she remembers her mom being really stubborn about it. I don't need that, she said. Megan's mother was a lifelong Republican, and she never signed up. 
In October of 2015, Megan's aunt called and said she ought to come visit. Megan hadn't seen her mom in a while. At this point, she had kids of her own, and most of the time, it was best for them to keep some distance when Megan's mother was binge drinking. But they went and visited. Megan said she could tell right away that she needed to see a doctor, but her mom still didn't have insurance. So she took her to the ER. There, she was diagnosed with in-stage liver failure due to cirrhosis. We had no insurance. We had no, she had no finances. I had no idea where to go. We were assigned a um, social worker in the hospital who did, I mean, we spent eight days in the hospital on no insurance. I can't tell you how like crazy that is. Normally when you have no insurance, you're in and they want you out because you can't pay. But she was extremely helpful and she dug through every possible resource that she could and she said, well, the first thing we need to do is we need to get you on a hospice program. They have federal grants through the hospice program that can help cover your mom until we can get disability, which includes Medicare and Medicaid. And all of a sudden, Megan is trying to just find end-of-life care for her mother, who doesn't have insurance and is mostly relying on federal grants to get into a hospice facility. But federal grants take some time. Her mother was given six months to a year to live and she didn't get approved for Medicaid until eight months. We got her Medicaid approved like at the 11th hour. You know, we had just enough time to make sure that we could afford her nursing home care, 24-hour nurses, the medicines that she needed that kept her body in check, and it back paid the hospice program that had taken care of her and made sure that she had Things like, you know, a, a ventilation system when she needed to breathe easier and that we're able to draw the fluid off of her. Um, you get um, fluid buildup with liver disease. And so sometimes they'd have to pull the fluid off and her medications would have to be managed. And her pain medication, she was in severe pain. Like many Kentuckians, Megan wouldn't have been able to pay for these expenses out of pocket. After the federal grant ran out, Medicaid helped pay for her mother's last months or so in the nursing home, $6,500 for six weeks of care. Scrambling to find the money to alleviate her mother's pain, Megan says, just added to the grief of losing her. I know that there's still problems with the ACA, but prior to the ACA, all those years I struggled to find my mother mental health care help and we just couldn't afford it and she slipped through those cracks and that's part of what led to her alcoholism being completely out of control which led to the cirrhosis and I believe it all really goes back to the fact that when she when we were younger before ACA there was no help for mental illness there was no help for addiction and those are two things that they're wanting to cut coming to the new program and, and I'm I, I am living proof people are going to pe people are going to be hurt. My mother was hurt by those programs before the ACA and it really was provisions within the ACA that allowed her to get help. The provisions she's talking about here relate to Megan's mother having a pre-existing condition. She was terminally ill. That's a pre-existing condition that could have kept you from having insurance prior to the ACA. It's easy to forget how completely unjust this system was for people who were dying before the ACA mandated that terminally ill have a right to coverage too. But Megan thinks about it all the time. Last July, I knew 
it was coming time for my mother to go into a nursing home. She went on on August 19th into the nursing home. So like right now, today, today's July 1st, if I think about where I was in this exact position last year and I knew I had the help, I can't even imagine how terrifying it must be knowing that you cannot, you know, that there's a chance that people are telling you you cannot take care of your parent or your husband or your brother or your best friend or your child. She means in light of the upcoming election last year. Last summer, few people expected that we would be living under a Trump presidency and that the GOP would get so close to repealing the ACA. But these are the things you think about when your loved one is dying. I buried my mother September 30th, 2016. And everybody came to the funeral and patted me on the back and said, we are so proud of you for taking care of somebody that didn't always take care of you when you needed it and you really dug deep and you found the resources and we're so proud of you and then a month later they all walked into a voting booth and voted against everything that had helped my mother and to me I mean like I've I know a lot of people talk about oh everybody on the other side they like to use the term snowflake you're so sensitive you're so this To me, this whole election is wrapped up in my grief. My mother needed these programs. I needed these programs. And in the midst of loss and grief, people I loved basically said people like me did not deserve to be taken care of. And that hurts deeply. It compounds my grief. What I don't understand about Medicaid, and what the proposed GOP legislation would have done to Medicaid in Kentucky. Thankfully, my friend Dustin knows a lot about this sort of thing. Dustin Pugel, I'm a policy analyst with the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. I sat down with Dustin before the vote on the Senate health care bill, and I asked how this sort of legislation would affect Kentuckians on Medicaid and, by extension, Kentucky's economy. So that means that, you know, there's 475,000 people on Medicaid expansion right now who would not have coverage anymore. Um, Those folks would then have to face a a marketplace where there's less premiums, there's higher deductibles, higher copays, higher coinsurance, and they either wouldn't be able to afford insurance, the Congressional Budget Office thinks that very few low-income folks would, would buy insurance there. Um, or they would get insurance that they really could never use because the deductibles would be so high. Um, that also means that Kentucky would get about um, $3.5 billion less that is currently going to health care providers. And then, of course, they use that money to hire new people. And then those people use that money to buy cars and houses and food and, you know, all the things that normal people buy to get by. And so... Um, that money leaves our economy, and when that happens, we lose jobs. So I've seen estimates anywhere between 15 and 85,000 jobs being lost with the end of the Medicaid expansion. Um, to put that in context, we lost about 100,000 jobs during the Great Recession. 
So losing 85,000 jobs is like a second recession level job loss. Um, I mean, it would be, for a lot of people, it would be catastrophic. Wow. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, so I don't think, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people think that's fear-mongering. And, I, and you know, I understand uh, the desire to not be knee-jerk and to, you know, have a measured approach. And I'm, I really sympathize with that. But, I mean, that's the reality of it. You can't pull $3.5 billion out of a small economy like Kentucky's and expect nothing to happen. You can't rip coverage away from nearly half a million people and think that, you know, no one's going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Dustin says changes to Medicaid, like those proposed in the failed Senate bill, fundamentally restructure the way states get money for Medicaid, gradually shrinking that amount over time. So what happens when states eventually have more people getting older, more people coming onto Medicaid, and less money to pay for them? That forces the state to do one of three things that, that all impact coverage. One is um, either start reducing the number of people who are on it. Um, two would be to reduce the level of benefits offered. Um, another part of the bill uh, says that the essential health benefits, so like hospitalization and drug care, maternity care, lab work, preventative care, uh, and others, that, that is automatically waived for Medicaid enrollees. So states don't have to ask for a waiver or anything, but Medicaid enrollees don't have to be provided with those services. Um, So out the gate, you're talking about a poor level of coverage. The third thing that this kind of Medicaid cut does is it uh, forces states to think about reducing provider payments. And provider payments for Medicaid are already incredibly low compared to like normal insurance and what they pay doctors. And what that does is it forces doctors to uh, consider how much they want to participate in Medicaid. So some of them would surely pull out of the program. And then you have people in areas where you may not have a doctor anywhere nearby that accepts your coverage. But where do these tax cuts go? Like, I understand why some people think that abstractly cutting taxes is a good move. But who really benefits from these? So it's about a $772 billion cut to Medicaid, um, and that pays for a $541 billion tax cut. Um, That tax cut is not something that you or I are going to (laughs) see any money from. This is for uh, mostly wealthy people. So it's, um, you know, it's it's a tax for people above a certain income level for Medicare. It's a tax for um, investments for people above $250,000 a year. Um, in fact, there's, there's one um, study that, that sort of broke it down for Kentucky and showed that 91% of the value of these tax cuts in Kentucky would go to the top 1% of earners. Um, and only 29,000 people in Kentucky total would see any of that money at all. So compare 29,000 people getting a tax cut versus, you know, uh, another estimate I've seen is over 700,000 people losing Medicaid coverage. I mean, that's that's the trade-off that's happening here. I wanted to know about people like Megan, who are facing impossible situations with end-of-life care. There's been so much talk this summer about pre-existing conditions, and according to Dustin, the Senate health care bill would have made it pretty easy for states to circumvent the rules about them. They keep saying, you hear you know, from Washington, oh, we're going to protect people with pre-existing conditions, you don't have to worry about that. Um, but, you know, if, if um, an insurer doesn't want to provide 
um, certain types of prescription drugs like insulin for diabetics, and they convince a state to waive that part of the essential health benefits, they can do that. This is the sort of world that the Better Care Reconciliation Act creates. Obviously, it's gone for now, but I think it's important to know that this isn't off the table forever. Not only that, but there is more currently happening on the state level that could also have a massive effect on our state Medicaid. Kentucky is one of at least six states with GOP governors that have already drafted new rules for Medicaid recipients in their state. Some, like Kentucky, want to add work requirements. Others want to do drug testing or raise premiums. We've talked a little bit about this on our podcast before. But unlike the Senate health care bill, which has come and gone, the changes Governor Bevin is pushing for on a state level are still very much in play. In fact, it's possible that as soon as next year, some Medicaid recipients may be required to fulfill community service errors. They may be penalized for inappropriate use of the emergency room or be made to re-enroll every year, among other requirements. This would be really troubling for people like Megan's mother, even before her lupus cirrhosis, who would face even more barriers to care under these changes proposed by Governor Bevin. And for folks dealing with mental illness, the barriers are even bigger. Does it feel good to like um, talk about it? Does it feel does it feel good to be a part of the like healthcare hearing and kind of be able to speak yeah. to these things? It does. Yeah. It does. In some ways, it's kind of like grief therapy. I get to talk about my mom and I get to talk about her situation. Mm-hmm. We all have these problems. We are all in the same boat together, wow. and and so that to me is part of why I talk about it because I don't want other people to have that kind of stigma. I don't want them to be afraid to ask for help. I don't want them to be afraid to go into the voting booth and say, I know I have someone in mental health, I know someone with addiction, and I want to vote in a way that's going to help that person. Um, I just think it's far too easy sometimes for people to say, oh, well, that's not me. That's somebody else. Stay tuned. More from KFTC members and their fight for health care when our show returns. Hi, I'm Samantha Lamar from the Central Kentucky Chapter, and I want you to be at our annual membership meeting August 25th through 27th at General Butler State Park. Join us as we fellowship with members from across the state, build skills for organizing our communities, and strategize for the year ahead. Register today at kftc.org. Welcome back to Power to the People. So I want to spend some time on this segment talking about something that was like super weird for us in Lexington. Okay, about a month ago, I'm at the KFTC office and one of the organizers I can hear from the other room is like, holy cow, Mike Pence is coming to Lexington. And like, what? Sure enough, minutes later, I'm on Facebook. Of course, everyone is talking about it, but no one knows any details, like nothing. And then I noticed a friend of mine had posted a link to a local news station with info about the event, and it was literally one sentence. It said that Vice President Mike Pence was indeed coming to Lexington to speak to local business owners in two days at Bryant's Rental. It was all very strange. So this segment is dedicated to the folks who showed up, 
both at the Mike Pence visit and at other actions during this weird, weird moment in our national healthcare conversation. So getting to the Bryant's rent all that day was a challenge in itself. We had to park and walk a ways to get to where we needed because so many roads were closed. That might be a good idea. So the police are shooing us off the street. Probably a sign that... I've just been informed that the street is lava. That'll keep me away. I don't want to step in lava. It wasn't a huge crowd, about 200 people, but 200 people standing in the sun in the middle of July for over three hours. I stood with one Central Kentucky KFTC member for a bit who came out despite being in the middle of his busiest time of the year. Jesse Frost, uh, farmer in Central Kentucky. Yeah, I had to double my work last night and this morning just to be able to come out and and stand uh, for the ACA. Uh, My family benefited from the ACA, and uh, it has helped us to start our business and also do one of the most dangerous jobs in the country without uh, risk, without so much fear hanging over us of getting an injury and not being able to uh, start a farm anymore. And as a first-generation farmer, something that we need, I think that's important. Uh, So, yeah, that's that's kind of what brings me out, and I feel like I need to stand here for my family and for my son. and, uh, and for farmers. Uh, we would probably not be able to afford uh, at least very good coverage, coverage enough that if I got hurt, I wouldn't have to uh, completely find something else to do to sustain my family. Um, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for, I don't think many people are looking for a complete handout, but we, it, it, uh, it has been so helpful to us to be able to uh, start our farm. And if it went, if, if it went away, we would, uh, have to reevaluate what we're doing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think. I think it is a pivotal moment. It's. An, it's one thing that I really want to say about the ACA is is whether or not you believe that healthcare is a right. It's an opportunity. Uh, I think that we shouldn't leave. Uh, we should take the same mentality of no soldier left behind and apply that to citizens uh, in our health. I should note that this whole day was put together as sort of a listening session with small business owners who have been quote hurt by the ACA. Lots of Kentucky legislators attended the closed-door invitation-only event, too, including Governor Bevin and Congressman Andy Barr. Also on the list were Kentucky House Representative Philip Pratt and Lexington City Councilman Fred Brown. What wasn't a part of the listening session were entrepreneurs who support the ACA, like this small business owner who came to protest. My name is Candace Reichbach, and uh, I own a, a small hair salon. Tell me about your sign. My sign says, um, small business owner with 11 employees, college-educated, tax-paying, law-abiding citizen, single mom. me, right? After I found out I was pregnant, which was about an, a year after I started my business, um, I called my health insurance company and asked what my maternity coverage looked like. And they said it was non-existent because you have to pay for maternity coverage 18 months prior to getting pregnant. Candace says that was in 2013. 
before certain parts of the ACA had rolled out. 2014, uh, ACA went through and actually covered the last four months of my pregnancy, which was fantastic. It put me in a position where I didn't have to choose between having a baby and having my livelihood. But, you know, this administration supposedly uh, promotes family values, but without ACA, I would have been put in a position where I would have had to seriously consider the abortion that I did not want to have. So. Candace says that at her salon, she offers her 10 employees extended maternity benefits, and she's really proud of that. She wants to run a business that supports women and supports family values. But she told me she recently got notice that they're losing their coverage because her business isn't big enough to qualify for their plan. Candace is convinced that this is because of the recent debate over repealing the ACA. She has a private plan, so it's impossible to know for sure. But it's not improbable. The American Health Care Act, which was the health care bill in the House, repealed an Obamacare tax credit for small businesses with less than 25 employees. It's, it's hitting me and everyone around me really, really hard right now. We watched the motorcade arrive, but we never saw it leave hours later. Vice President Pence left out a back exit on the far side of the facility. We didn't see Bevan or Andy Barley either. But I did catch up with Daniel Goulding, another KFTC member in Lexington who participated in the People's Emergency Healthcare Hearing just two weeks prior. ACA has been important to my family. My mom was diagnosed with cancer in 2014 and um, with melanoma. Danielle says that without coverage under the ACA, her mother probably would have died. So what started out as just like a, you know, weird mole in her leg, fast forward to now is metastasized to a brain tumor. What does your sign say? Oh, um, killing ACA will kill Kentuckians. Yeah. Because that's what will happen. It's, it's especially frustrating for me because um, my mom didn't have health care before her diagnosis, but if she had had normal routine checkups and normal preventative care, you know, most likely this weird mole is something that would have been spotted and, you know, just a simple outpatient, you know, removal, but instead it was allowed to turn into something really awful. Um, and now, you know, at this point, my mom has probably had a million dollars worth of health care put into her, um, but wasn't worth just basic health care before, and that's both a shame and not efficient use of health care dollars. Danielle's mother was at the hospital the day we talked, as we waited to catch a glimpse of the vice president. Just a week prior, she had had her second surgery to remove a mass from her brain. While it's really important to my family, like, my mom literally would be dead. Um, I also care about, like, my fellow community members and people who need access to health care. It's true that a lot of people rallied this summer around the issue. Polls show that health care is the most important issue to Americans right now. Just last weekend, even after the Senate bill had been killed, KFTC members in Pikeville held a rally in solidarity with National Healthcare Day of Action, and tons of people showed up. 
And I went to a rally with KFTC members in Covington just a few days before this. So, supposedly, Ohioans who are a part of this action today are going to be meeting us in the middle. We'll see how that goes. Very heartwarming. It was an effort between groups in Northern Kentucky, including KFTC, and a few groups in Cincinnati. The idea was to walk across the bridge, meet in the middle, and hang these large homemade banners over the rails so that they could be seen from the river, the riverbanks, and I guess the surrounding areas. Not quite as much chanting as the Mike Pence rally, but I'm telling you, some very high quality banners were unveiled that day. If you can hear humming in the background, that's the sound of cars crossing the John A. Roebling Bridge, built in 1856 by John Roebling, of course. People say the Roebling Bridge, which at the time it was built, was the longest suspension bridge in the world, was a prototype for the Brooklyn Bridge. Anyways, cars drive over a metal gate to cross, and it makes this really wild humming noise, or really annoying humming noise, depending on your perspective. Oh, wow, that boat is jamming to Lee Greenwood. For the record, that guy kept circling back around to look at our banners and also blasted hits like Board of the USA from his boat for over 20 minutes. There were lots of boats on the river that day. It was hot. Like many other moments in life, it was difficult to interpret people's reactions to us being there. Hard to tell if that's a supportive wave or not. But those who showed up to protest stayed in good spirit. That guy looks like a KFTC member. Big time. I stood next to this really sweet KFTC member, Joanne Schwartz, who lives in Covington. We were standing there, and some lady who was crossing the bridge stopped to check her sign, and they ended up talking about healthcare for over 10 minutes. That's how personal this is to everyone. A stranger who lives in Cincinnati can just stop and talk to someone she's never met on a bridge and tell her this entire story about falling down a flight of stairs in Chile. But that's also sort of how Joanne is. She's so sweet. We chatted as our entire group on the bridge was instructed to hold hands and stretch across the bridge. Can you, um, Joe says you used to be a nurse, is that right? That's correct. How long were you a nurse for? Uh, 40 years. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm being caught in <laughs> When did you retire from? Um, last year. Last so year. you saw the implementation? Oh, you know, what people don't realize, there really are two tiers of, of healthcare now. And imagine what is going to happen when the bottom falls out. But also, is that we were just talking to the lady who was to Chile. Um, the hospitals had a bucket of, of money that they could... No, we're not handling it anymore. Okay. It's like, okay, what are we doing here? Stand a little bit. Stretch so, it out. Which way? Okay, okay, so a bucket of money. Okay, yeah, um, that the hospitals used to use for indigent care. And now if uh, Medicare is removed or reduced, all those people are going to go to the emergency rooms uh, and be admitted there, which will, over a lot of our smaller hospitals will no longer exist because they want to be able to afford to 
operate, uh -huh. how many people will lose their jobs. Yeah. So there's all different layers of this. Uh, were you a part of the healthcare hearing at all? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like, I hate to ask, like, do you feel like your voice matters, but do you feel like uh, McConnell is like listening to Kentuckians? No, I don't know who he supports anymore, and I, I, I didn't know him in the beginning, but now he's our adversary, adversary, not our representative. Across the plains of Texas, from sea to shining sea. Joanne said she's not sure who Mitch McConnell represents. I'm not sure either, and I'm not sure he ever knew we were there. But I'm glad we were out there. That and it's time we stand and say Stay tuned, we're going to take a short break. Hi, I'm Eric Dixon from the Letcher County Chapter of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Stay up to date with our episodes of Power to the People by subscribing to the show on iTunes. Find the show by searching KFTC in iTunes or the podcast app. It just takes a few seconds and you'll be automatically updated when a new episode is available. Thanks. Welcome back to Power to the People, where today we're talking healthcare in Kentucky. For our last segment, a perspective that I think is critical to this conversation about the healthcare we want in Kentucky. And that's what GOP healthcare bills mean for women. Before we even get to the nitty gritty of how things like the Better Care Reconciliation Act would affect women, I think it's important to talk about female senators and their role in all this. When this whole thing started a few months ago, it became obvious pretty quickly that women were completely shut out of the drafting of this bill. I know I saw tons of memes on Facebook that were like, wow, here's a photo of the 12 white men who drafted a bill to repeal the ACA. And it's true. There are five GOP women in the Senate, and all of them were excluded from negotiations. By the way, five? Five. Just five? Five? Five, five out of fifty? Five out of fifty-two? Literally five? Okay, moving on. By the time the bill had failed and McConnell was pulling a Hail Mary to only repeal the ACA with no replacement, three women, Lisa Murkowski, Shelley Moore Capito, and Susan Collins, shut it down. Capito tweeted, I did not come to Washington to hurt people. Hilariously, Rush Limbaugh called them three female leftists who are running the Senate. Their concerns were basically the same as their male colleagues. The bill cuts Medicaid too much, it raises premiums on elderly and sick people, and it leaves rural hospitals without a safety net. But Murkowski and Collins both said they wouldn't vote for legislation that defunded women's health care through Planned Parenthood. I'd like to take some time to talk about Planned Parenthood. I could talk for a really long time about how important this organization is to women and also non-women in this country. But as someone who has received quality and affordable care at Planned Parenthood, I am so baffled at this whole notion of, quote, defunding it, especially in a place like Kentucky where Planned Parenthood can't even perform abortions. Like, what? 
So I sat down with my friend Adele to find out more about what defunding Planned Parenthood would look like. I am Adele Burke, and I am the Community Outreach Coordinator for Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky in Central Kentucky. The term defund is kind of a misnomer because when people hear it, they assume that there is a line item in the federal budget that goes to Planned Parenthood. Um, That's not the case. So the way that it works is that um, we receive patients who have all sorts of different kinds of insurance or no insurance. And so sometimes, you know, a lot of the times people come in and they have Medicaid as their insurance. And so we get reimbursed for the services that we provide to those folks who have Medicaid insurance, just the way that any other healthcare provider does. Um, If you were a regular doctor's office, you would get reimbursed by the federal government for Medicaid services. Um, So the bill is proposing that Planned Parenthood specifically would no longer be able to receive reimbursements for the Medicaid services that they provide for uh, for folks on Medicaid um, from the federal government. And so because we have um, over 50% of our patients on Medicaid, that's gonna have a huge impact on our patients' ability to see Planned Parenthood um, and also our ability to maintain um, clinics and, and keep those clinics open. I've heard Congressman Andy Barr talk a lot about how patients can just as easily get services at local clinics that aren't Planned Parenthood, that they're not the only game in town, so defunding them wouldn't be that big a deal. When I hear that, I'm like, no, thank you. This is a pretty personal thing for me, and I want to feel as safe as possible when I'm making these kinds of doctor visits. So I asked Adele about this. That is the most frequent um, argument to defund Planned Parenthood. Um, But there are a lot of folks who use Planned Parenthood um, as their primary care. Um, And so those folks, um, they're getting breast cancer screenings, they're getting cervical cancer exams um, when they wouldn't be able to go to any other provider. Um, And then the other thing is that Planned Parenthood offers a wide range of services that other um, community health centers don't provide, like access to long-acting reversible contraception, um, a wide variety of different types of contraception. Um, So especially like for younger folks who, um, you know, find the IUDs are really helpful for them, um, that's something they can't necessarily Uh, access at their normal clinic. And we also um, offer those services at uh, low cost, um, and that's not necessarily available at other clinics as well. Our healthcare shouldn't be like piecemeal, it should be um, widely accessible, and there should be some freedom to choose your provider. It shouldn't just be like you have to use community health centers. Um, Planned Parenthood um, is a trusted provider, and it should be accessible to everyone. Honestly, it's hard for me to imagine having to find access to the care I've needed without Planned Parenthood. I'm not even sure where I would go. I think lots of women feel this same way. Planned Parenthood has been here for 100 years, and so we have a really strong reputation for um, serving populations um, that are typically underserved. So we always take Medicaid patients, we always take uh, folks who don't have insurance, and so people trust us because of that. and then also uh, the fact that you know we're just well known for our preventative services as well. So folks um, who don't have um, access to health insurance know that they can come to us for sort of a lot of their health care needs, not just things that are focused around contraception. Cancer screenings are your regular pap smears to make sure that you, you know, don't have anything abnormal happening, um, you know, those things. Um, and we have lots of stories of folks who have like discovered that they have um, abnormal um, pap smears and were able to get a referral to a specialist based on Planned Parenthood um, detecting that. I want to back up a little bit and talk about Planned Parenthood and abortion. When we talk about Planned Parenthood and where funding comes from, a lot of people are quick to point out that abortions make up only 3% of services provided at Planned Parenthood. 
And that's fine because, yes, Planned Parenthood does offer incredible care, as Adele said. But it's also sort of weird that abortion is totally legal, not to mention safe and effective, and yet exists in a different class of care. This is because of something called the Federal Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment was passed in 1976, and it prohibits the use of federal funds to pay for an abortion. In effect, this means that if you're on Medicaid, you're paying for your abortion out of pocket. And if you're on Medicaid, that $600 procedure is probably a significant portion of your income. We um, and a lot of other organizations um, that believe in reproductive justice nationally think that the Hyde Amendment is unjust. And um, it basically is a barrier for low-income uh, people to access um, abortion, which is um, a constitutionally protected healthcare, um, you know, procedure, just like any other healthcare procedure. Um, and so, it shouldn't be treated differently or segregated from the rest of um, the healthcare services that people should be able to receive. There's a you know total underclass of folks who don't have access to a constitutionally protected like medical procedure, um, which is really like absurd when you think about it. <laughs> You know, anyone, especially like, you know, queer folks and like, you know, just, you know, you know, trans folks who have uteruses and like anybody who receives our services. Um, it's really important that one of our main values is that we're, we provide non-judgmental care um, and non-biased care. Um, and so we're always trying to make sure that we meet those standards um, and that we can maintain like our trusted presence in the community. For another perspective on how the Senate health care bill would affect women, I decided to visit my old pal, Megan. And he, uh, he just started rolling over, which is cute, but also means we can't swaddle him anymore. So he's not really been in the sleep thing. Megan is a new mom. I haven't yet gotten to meet her little bugs, so this visit was so, so great. I'm Megan Osman and Berea, mm -hmm. and we're hearing the cooings of Ari Stobel, also in Berea. <laughs> and he's 10 weeks? 10 weeks. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> he says, I'll sing for you. <laughs> One piece of why healthcare for women is important comes long before a pregnancy even occurs. For Megan, her asthma requires pretty much constant care. Routine medications, allergy shots, and checkups. But thanks to the ACA, she's been able to maintain coverage despite having a pre-existing condition. And that's actually probably a big part of how I was healthy enough to even get pregnant in the first place and, you know, have the idea that it could be a viable pregnancy because some of the medicines that I was on, you know, just a few years ago were not safe for pregnancy. And, you know, if I had had a lapse in coverage, you know, that could have been a really big a really big problem if my asthma wasn't as well maintained as it had been because, you know, you can't drop people as easily. Jacob and I would both, my husband, would both be denials on the individual market pre-Affordable Care Act. So, you know, that 
was a scary time for both of us. And early in our relationship, we both had um, job transitions, and it was something we were really stressed about um, in that in those transitions. At that point in time, my prescriptions were well over a thousand dollars a month, and that was just the prescriptions. That wasn't like that was the maintenance stuff, not like doctor visits or if I got sick or insurance premiums or anything. Um, so I knew that I had to do whatever I needed to do, do my best to secure a job that came with benefits. Um, but that's not something that everybody has, you know, the necessarily the education to do easily. Um, and there are plenty of places where there just aren't as many jobs with benefits. Like, it's not a personal choice that people can always make. Once Megan and her partner got pregnant, their plan, of course, included essential health benefits covered by the ACA. One of these benefits was a free breast pump. And I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll have to remember to get that before I go to work. Um, and my midwife said, you know, you may as well just go ahead and pick this up now. It's free. Here's a prescription. You can go to any of these stores in town and pick one up. Um, so I, said, I, I did that. I thought, oh, this will be just one thing that I'm ahead of the game on. But when Megan came home from the hospital, her son went on a nursing strike. And so, you know, it was the middle of the night. I couldn't reach a lactation consultant or anything. And I'm starting to, I'm, you know, coming engorged. And, you know, I read La Leche League and several places that are like, hey, if this happens, you need to pump because especially when your milk is just coming in, if you... Um, if you're not pumping or nursing, you can really jeopardize your supply. So for longer term. Um, so I was able to read the instructions that, that night, put it together and, um, pump. And at that point in time, he took a bottle. <laughs> He's not into that anymore, but, um, but you know, it was really, it was really critical because I didn't, I didn't realize I needed it right away um, and if it hadn't been free with the ACA and my midwife hadn't encouraged me to go ahead and get it I maybe wouldn't have had it and you know I could have had serious supply issues. For someone like me who's never birthed a child it's hard to understand exactly how much health care is required for the process. Even with good health coverage folks with high deductible plans can end up paying a lot out of pocket. But one provision of the ACA puts a yearly limit on how much you pay out of pocket. I will hit my out of pocket max this year, which is forty five hundred on the plan, um, and that's with prenatal visits. Um, they start out, I think, every other month or so, and then they go to every month, and then every two weeks, and at the end, you're you're going every week, um, and then there's postpartum follow ups. Um, and I had a lot of like sciatica-like pain <laughs> in the end of my pregnancy. Um, and so I, that was chiropractic visits a couple times a week at the end, cause I would throw my hips out of placement in my sleep and then not hardly be able to walk. But, um, that was only the last few weeks. Thank goodness. I would love to see single payer every other um, developed country that is as advanced as we are says, hey, 
We pay for roads and schools together. Let's also take care of each other. Megan says that she feels lucky that she has had a generous employer on top of the essential health benefits provided by the ACA. She doesn't want to return to a time when she had to call around to pharmacies and research the best price to purchase her allergy meds at. She says she felt like she was often looked at as a pre-existing condition rather than a person. Definitely a lot to manage. <laughs> but luckily, Lump Man has been really healthy, and I hope that continues to be the case and that he doesn't have to deal with health care as much as I have. But, oh my goodness, He's listen so to that smile. Smiling. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He's even smiling when you try and put him to sleep. <laughs> I wonder where he got that. That's all we've got today for Power to the People with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. If you're listening in the Apple podcast, please go ahead and leave a review of the show. It would make us so happy and it makes us way easier for folks to find us. Kentuckians for the Commonwealth is a statewide 36-year-old grassroots organization working for a new balance of power in Kentucky. And as always, you can find out more information about our work at kftc.org. Special thanks today to Sweet James Line, the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky, Indivisible Bluegrass, Greg Capillo for his perfect thunderous laugh you heard in the first segment, and every single person who made the People's Emergency Healthcare hearing happen. Not all heroes wear capes, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>